This is Steve Robbins, host of the Get It Done Guy podcast, and I'm here today with Christopher Voss, who is the FBI's lead kidnapping uh, kidnapping negotiator, which makes me very scared to try to negotiate anything with him, and the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, um, which I have a copy of if you're watching this on video. And if you aren't, go out and grab a copy of the book right now so that you can see what it looks like and read it because it's awesome. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So I started reading your book, and one of the things that I was struck by is you began with a contrasting between the Harvard Program on Negotiation approach to negotiating and your approach to negotiating. Uh, as listeners of my podcast know, I actually just finished taking the Harvard Program on Negotiation uh, course about three months ago, and I did a bunch of podcasts on things that I learned. And so I read your book and was totally devastated to learn that it's entirely possible that I may only know half the story or even less than half the story. So can you start by telling me what, how, how are you different? What is it that you and your approach does that you think is, um, I mean, you save lives, they don't. So tell me about that. And, and Well, yeah, I mean, I think it would be the comparison, if you will, between a, uh, you know, they're a bit of a jet fighter. I'm a stealth bomber. I'm, 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 next, I'm next generation. Um, I think I've, uh, they, they've been sort of groping around applying emotional intelligence, you know, in a very strategic and tactical way <clears throat> to their intellectually, intellectually based negotiation. I mean, Getting to Yes is a very intellectual book. It's a great book. I've never heard anybody say, there's anything wrong with the book, Getting to Yes. I've also never heard anybody say, yeah, I read the book. I took it out. I immediately made an impact on my deals and as an email I got from somebody on LinkedIn just a couple of days ago said, uh, partially through the book, uh, he tried two tactics and got a deal delivered two weeks early. Yeah, I've never had anybody say any of that and forgetting DS or any other negotiation book. So I think, you know, the very, um, there's a difference between assertion and aggression. Uh, you know, a very assertive uh, approach um, to infusing tactical empathy into hard bargaining negotiations, and it's uh, it's kind of a mutation. It's Harvard Plus, if you will, Harvard Plus the FBI. Got it. So tell me a little bit then about what was it, because you mentioned in the book that you had started, you had taken the Harvard course, uh, and you just didn't find that it was necessarily something that you really wanted to apply if you're negotiating for someone's life. Well, you know, I, I took the Harvard course, and um, they're great people. I mean, I love them. I still collaborate with them. We share ideas. Nobody disagrees with anybody else. You know, I was stunned to find the stuff that we were doing at the FBI to be more evolved. Um, they talked about active listening. We talked about active listening. And they said, okay, well, how do you do active listening? Well, ask good questions and paraphrase. And at, at the time in the FBI, we had eight very specifically defined skills. And my colleagues there at, at Harvard said, wow, we have not defined things as clearly as you have or really taken it as far as you guys have. So, you know, it's, it's, we found ourselves to be a little bit more evolved. If that answers your question, I, I, I think I sort of lost track well, of the exact question. Sure. I guess the question is, what kind of situations does your material apply to in particular? Or how does it take the existing situations that I would take the Harvard material into and take it further? Right. Well, okay. So, if, if you want, if you need collaboration, if you need cooperation, if you're in sales, if you're negotiating contracts, if you if you need people to cooperate with you and get what you want, I mean, never split the difference is about getting what you want and still having the other side like you. 
sort of the Donald Trump approach to negotiation. I don't mean to badmouth Mr. Trump. I have tremendous respect for him. You know, it, it's the assertive style negotiator that, that we had to beat. Um, yeah, it was the international kidnapper, the guy who scared people, the guy who made, made big, big demands, who everybody was afraid of. That's who I had to deal with in negotiations on a regular basis, make deals with those people, and then have them want to continue to deal with this even when we gain the upper hand. I, you know, I had a negotiation in the Philippines, and basically I was an international negotiation coach. Drop me anywhere in the world, let me find somebody who's coachable, let me teach them how to negotiate. And I'm going to bring that guy up to speed, and we're going to win. We're going to win in the other side's world very quickly. And in one of those negotiations in the Philippines, when I was when I was back in the Philippines just a couple of weeks afterwards, a terrorist that we had beaten literally called uh, my negotiator, the guy that I had coached, on the phone and said, hey, have you been promoted yet? I have no idea what you did to me on the phone, but whatever it was, it worked because I was going to kill Jeffrey. They should promote you. And he hung up. I mean, that's what you want out of your negotiations. Whoever you're dealing with, friend or foe, you want them to respect you, to maybe even like you, and still want to deal with you in the future. So it applies to any interaction where you're trying to get the other side to cooperate. If the word yes is in the air, you're in a negotiation. If it's hinted at, if you need action from the other side, it could be a coworker. it could be your significant other, whoever you need better cooperation from. So let's pretend that I haven't taken any other negotiating courses and I have, for whatever reason, just been called in to be the lead negotiator on a business deal and they've called you in to be my coach. So coach, I'm planning on going in and I'm just going to sit down and tell the other side what our position is because gosh darn it, I'm pretty sure that we just have them over a barrel and we can just tell them what they want and they'll just give right in. Am I doing the right thing? Is that where I start? All right, so uh, your preparation is exactly what the, how the other side is preparing. They want to sit down and tell you what they've got going. Now, interestingly enough, we've got cards that we're hiding that they don't know about, which means they do too. And what we have to do is we want to get them talking because they're going to show us those cards when they start talking. So they're as hot to talk to us as we are to them. All we got to do is lay back and let them talk and we're going to see their cards, and they're not going to see ours. Now, how are we going to do that? Because I'm sitting here thinking of, like, you know, Ocean's Eleven, where, where the kidnapper sends a three-line sentence, you know, by carrier pigeon that gets dropped off to the big, beautiful woman named Natasha who's standing under a street lamp wearing a, you know, a large fedora or whatever it is, and she has the papers and things. H how are you going to get them talking directly to you and being open like that? Because that seems like a big leap to just assume that they'll give their hand away. Right, and they're dying to talk to us. They're dying to talk to us. They get this great argument built out, and we're going to learn how to listen between the lines. Now, a lot of these things that we're going to do to keep them talking sounds ridiculously simple, and it's very much like my, what my first interaction with uh, Bob Manukin, who's the head of the Harvard program on negotiation. You know, when we sat down to negotiate, which is a story I tell at the beginning of the book, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, Chris, what are you going to do to me? How are you going to negotiate? And I just looked at him and I said, I'm going to ask open-ended questions. And he's like, oh, that sounds stupid. You know, what, what good is that going to do? And I go, uh, you know, that's all I'm going to do, man. It's that simple. And he goes, okay, all right, fine. Let's try. And that's when he brought Gabriella Blum into the room, the, uh, the, the scholar from the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, an attorney, brilliant woman. 
and brought his secretary in, and they sat down with a tape recorder. And then he looked me in the eye, and he said, all right, I've got your son. I've got your son. I need a million dollars by tomorrow morning. you got to give me a million dollars. And I just looked at him, and I said, how am I supposed to do that? And he just stopped, and he hesitated. He blinked a couple times. And I said, how am I supposed to pay you if I don't even know he's alive? How do I even know if he's alive? And this went on and on and on and on. And finally, Gabrielle yelled at him and said, don't let him do that to you. You know, all I did was ask him the right opening of questions. I told him I was going to do that to him. He said, that's stupid. That'll never work. And then less than a minute after I told him I was going to do it to him, I did it to him. And that's what you'll do in the negotiation that I coach you through. Okay, so how do I start? By, um, I mean, if I, if I walk into the room... It seems like, well, first of all, let's use a business example here. If I'm going into a room and let's say I'm negotiating, um, someone's asked me for a proposal and they want a house built and I say, oh, I'll build your house for $100, or at least that's what I'm thinking is I want to get paid $100 for building the house or, you know, 100000 or whatever the right units are. How would I walk in and actually open the conversation? Do I start off by, by, I, so the the approach I was taught right is come in and give a number so that you anchor the discussion in a particular range and so on. And it it I, for the impression that I get from your material is I'm not necessarily even thinking about anchoring a number at that point in the negotiation. But how do how do I start? Well, you you kind of asked me two different questions. How do we start, and whether or not we want to anchor, and what kind of uh, an advantage an anchor is going to give us? Yeah, I did mix those up. Uh, whichever you prefer, or both. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll try to deal with them one at a time. I mean, again, first of all, you know, the other side's dying to talk to us. So, uh, the, you know, one of the magic stealth moves is seems like you guys have put a lot of thought and effort into this. Now, we imagine in the holodeck in our head, in the uh, three-dimensional fantasy world from Star Trek, remember the holodeck on the yeah. Starship Enterprise? Well, everybody's got a holodeck on their head. So we imagine that when we say to the other side, you know, it seems like you guys have put a lot of thought into this, that they're going to look at us and go, yes, and shut up. Well, nobody ever does that. And that's especially why we say it seems like, because the word seems like immediately triggers in the other side's head. It makes them start to contemplate what we've just said. And it immediately changes their mindset, puts them in a different frame of mind. As soon as we got them contemplating, that's something that's called slow thinking, interestingly enough, uh, coined by Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for Behavioral Economics. And slow thinking is when we stop someone in their tra tracks and they stop and think. And we've just put them in a different frame of mind. We've got them thinking. And now all we've got to do is connect that thought process with their mouth, which is the other part. Because when we've said that, it seems like the other interesting thing about that is it's not a question per se, which we've just given them the opportunity or the option to respond to, which increases the chances that they're going to respond. We've triggered a part of their brain that makes them want to show off how smart they are, and people love showing off how smart they are. So we're hitting about four different parts of their brain at the same time. Each one of those components in the brain is going to want to talk. I don't know which one of those is going to trigger it, but I know it's going to trigger it, and they're going to come across with more information. From that, they're going to give me a thread. I'm going to continue pulling on that thread until I've got what I need out of it. Okay. Now, the other question you asked me about was anchor. Yeah. Now, anchoring is something that we want to do, but whatever my anchor is, I want more than that. 
I know that there's more on the table than I know about because they're holding cards. And I need to get them talking to find out what there is. There's a great saying that we've lived by, which is never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. <laughs> I like that saying. Well, one of the problems with doing all this assessment on the negotiation ahead of time is if we pick something that we really want, a goal, then most of the time we just put blinders on and we're going to go right past the better things. Now, the only way we find out about the better things is to get the other side talking. That's the problem with goal setting. You have to be very careful because the more focused you are, the more blinders you have on and the more likely it is you're going to leave value on the table. And our job is to not leave any value on the table. Okay. Interesting. So your job is not is not to leave something on the table so that they come back, but you do keep people coming back because your terrorist called your colleague up. So, okay. So now I'm very curious because I, of course, was also taught that part of the way that you establish an ongoing relationship is to leave something on the table so that they come back. But it sounds like that's really different from your approach. Well, you know, and that's not horrible, but here's a better approach because all human beings, whether we're terrorists, whether we're sociopaths, whether we're CEOs. <laughs> Possibly no difference in those three groups, but... Uh... Oh, well, you know, I didn't mean to imply anything there. But we don't remember things the way they happen. We remember things based on two things. We remember things based on the most intense moment and how it ended. Broadway's known this for a million years. They've lived by the phrase, give them a big finish and they'll forgive you for anything. So what we need to make sure we do is control the ending of every one of our conversations. We control the ending by moving some of the stuff that we would normally say at the beginning and putting it at the end. We have to end on a positive note because they're going to remember that we ended on a positive note. So when you call somebody on the phone, we don't want to fall into the trap that's called the old by the way. And the old by the way is, hey, how you doing? How the wife? How the kids? Did you watch a ball game? Did you watch your know, game seven last night? It was phenomenal. All this positive relationship building stuff. And then we say, oh, by the way, I want you to cut your price. But we don't do that. That's horrible. Because what we've just done is we've just orchestrated this communication so that it ends horribly. So we've got to start out from the very beginning. We're going to, we're going to shuttle the order around a little bit. We're going to be phenomenally effective. We start out by saying, like, look, I got something you don't want to hear. Now, that's called bracing themselves. And then no matter what we say next, I know that in their holodeck, because we're taking advantage of the holodeck, they've just imagined something horrible. They've imagined some of the effect of you're going to say, I hate you. I hate all your family. I hate your entire ancestry. And I'm going to make sure that you and everything you believe in dies. Like, I don't know what they've just imagined. But whatever they've just imagined, it's going to be worse than what we've just said. So uh, then we say, look, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm afraid i got to ask you to cut your price. Now, knowing that they just imagined something worse than that, they're actually relieved. Then we're going to go through the conversation, which now they've been relieved by a little bit. It isn't that bad because they've imagined something more horrible than what, what we ever put out. Then when we get to the end, we're going to say, hey, look, man, did you watch Game 7 last night? You know, how's the family? Any of the positive stuff has to go at the end because then we just had a very specific sequence in the negotiation. They like us. They want to do business with us again. And the next time the phone rings, they'll remember how that call ended. Wow. So you're using the uh, is the recency effect? Is that what it's called? 
or the I uh, no, yeah, that would be the recency effect, and and it can be confused with a couple of other things, but it's absolutely the recency effect. Let's call it the Broadway effect. The Broadway effect. Okay, wow, that's pretty cool. So, what are some other cool tips? By the way, just so you know, I've read Thinking Fast and, Cl- and Slow from cover to cover. I'm a huge Kahneman fan, and. Uh, one of my goals is to help people incorporate his stuff into places where, you know, frankly, right now they just do a really bad job of mentally prepping people and understanding biases and education and motivation and all kinds of things. So um, I love that you're applying this in ways that I've certainly never heard before. Um, uh, tell us more. What, <laughs> what, what are some other things that, um, you know, I would, I'll just say that'll go against the conventional wisdom because you know the what? conventional wisdom and you know how what you do is different. Right, right. You know, um, you know, there's something else that, that absolutely scares the heck out of people, but it's 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 beautiful the way it works. Um, we diffuse negatives intentionally, and I te- we tend to ha- like to go after them first. Now, the reasons why someone won't make a deal with you are often more of an obstacle to the deal getting done than the positives for doing the deal. So what we want to do is we want to get the negatives out of the way, and maybe the positives will take over and make it easy for us. Now, the way that we make get the negatives out of the way is completely counterintuitive and scares the heck out of everybody. And it's very much like what I, what I talked about before. It's identifying a negative in advance, and I usually do it by saying something like, I've got something you don't want to hear, or you know, I've got bad news, or my favorite is this is going to sound horrible. Um, I do it all the time in my negotiation classes. All, all negotiation classes I, I teach, I say, I'm going to ask for volunteers to negotiate with me in front of the group. And just in case you're worried about how it's going to go, before we do it, I want you to know in advance, it's going to be horrible. And, and people laugh. You know, be, but it gets that fear. You know, and who knows what horrible means? Right. And I right. go through the role play with them, which is pretty difficult. But... I never want anybody to ever be in a position where they said, man, that was worse than what you said. You know, I will always overstate the negative. Now, interestingly enough, I've known about this since uh, the day back in 1991 when I was on a suicide hotline, and I realized that identifying negatives in advance made them go away like magic. And I've been basically applying it since 91. Now, we've got science today that we didn't have back then, and there's some mad scientists doing brain work today. I'm like, who thought this one up? But I've, I've read the study where they actually hooked electrodes up to the part of the brain that feels fear in the amygdala. <clears throat> because all conventional wisdom will tell you never introduce a negative. The key is you don't deny negatives. There's a difference between denying a negative and introducing a negative. And every single time somebody's told me never introduce a negative, they pointed to that day back in the 70s when then President Nixon stood up in front of the uh, America and the world and said, I am not a crook. And they said that was introducing a negative. That's not true. That's denying a negative. You don't deny negatives. Okay, what you do okay. is identify them. And what happens, as scientists have said, when they've actually put wires in people's brains to the part of the amygdala, which is where all the fears are magnified and bounce through the rest of our brain, and they've seen electrical activity in that portion of the brain diminish, if not go away, with the mere identification of a negative. It would be the, I don't want this to seem horrible, would be denial. If I say, this is going to sound horrible, it's an identification. Don't deny, identify, and it goes away like magic. Interesting. 
So I'm, I'm, my brain is immediately going to child rearing on this. And if a kid scrapes their knee and just a mother going, oh, it doesn't hurt that bad or it's going to clear up in just a minute or something like that. And it almost seems like, like um, so I, sorry, I mean, this isn't a negotiation. It's just it's the, the association it triggered. And I'm thinking that I've also heard parents say, oh, it hurts really badly, you know, and it'll stop eventually. And it seems like just acknowledging, yes, it hurts badly or yes, that was, you know, a bad fall or whatever starts the calming process immediately. It, it begins to trigger different parts of the brain. And it's a great analogy because regardless of the different development of a child's brain, they've got amygdalas just like adults do. And that portion of the brain is, you know, the, the caveman brain, the reptilian brain, whatever, however anybody wants to talk about it. And, that, and science shows us that our thought patterns start there and move through there before it gets to our rational side. So if we can understand how to deal with somebody's amygdala, we have a tremendous amount of influence in their decision making. So what are other ways we can influence people's emotions? Because it sounds like you're going straight for the emotional center, essentially, and and defusing that so that you can then have a rational conversation with someone. Or right. Yeah, right. Which is what a hostage negotiator does. You know, high-powered, high-intensity skills to bring someone into a rational state of mind when they when their their emotions are driving them so hard that quote they're irrational. Well, you know, our emotions are driving all of us because every single decision we make is based on what we care about. You make up your mind based on what you care about. If you're willing to accept that as a truth, then you've accepted that decision-making is an emotional process because caring is emotions. So uh, the other thing that, that we do uh, very proactively, besides diffusing negatives, interestingly enough, the positives uh, act uh, in the opposite way. You identify a positive, it builds it. You identify a negative, it diffuses it. I don't know why that is. I just know it is. I've been making a living doing that ever since... I first learned it back in 1991. So if I'm I'm talking to you, and I I did this today because I wanted someone who sent me a message about how much they love my book. They put it on Facebook, and I would love to see that on Amazon. So the first thing I said in uh, in my email response on Facebook to them was, wow, that was very generous of you. Well, what I've just done is I've just nurtured that generosity gene inside them by identifying that. It makes them want to be more generous because I know that if I can make them more generous, they can, they're can they more likely to put a review up on Amazon, which is exactly what he came back to me. I, didn't, I, I said, look, it would be that was very generous of you to do that. It would be wonderful if you put it on Amazon because I need to nurture the generosity side at that point in time. And it's not because I'm trying to nurture something that's against what he's doing. He's already thinking about it. I'm just leaning them in different directions that I know to my, to my advantage. So I can, I can nurture positives when I hear them. I can diffuse negatives. The other thing that you can do is the opposite. You know, there's a yin and a yang thing to both. If you decide that you don't, you're afraid of one or the other, you're experimenting with one or the other, you just flip the, you know, whatever somebody likes, they dislike the opposite. Whatever somebody dislikes, they like the opposite. So then life sort of becomes a smorgasbord or a buffet of which positives and negatives you want to influence in order to make people happier dealing with you, which is really ultimately what this is all about, because they're going to figure out what you've done at some point in time, which is exactly what the terrorists did in the Philippines. And when they figure that out, either they're upset with you 
Well, they want to call you and pay their respects, and they want to deal with you again, and that's where we're going with all of this. So how do you make sure that their interpretation comes out to be that they want to deal with you again versus, ooh, we figured out what you did, now now we're going to order a hit on you? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, it, and it's, it's how, you, how you left the interaction, whether or not they felt they were treated with respect. Hostage negotiation tools, here's another thing a lot of people don't realize. The set of skills that I learned in the FBI, same set of skills I use in South Africa, Tokyo, Manila, Nigeria, Bogota, Colombia. Same set of skills all across the board, emotional intelligence skills, because regardless of what culture we're from, we're human beings first. And one of those things is respect. Respect is a universal feeling no matter who you're dealing with. So I treat people with respect. I, I implement my deals. I live by my word. You know, I don't believe in lying. I don't believe in misleading anybody. One of the things, uh, again, uh, back to Bob Manukin at the program of negotiation at Harvard, when I went through their training, he got a big kick, big kick out of my answer because, you know, Chris, uh, how do you guys in the FBI, how do you feel about lying? And my answer was, and they laughed uncomfortably. I said, well, we don't lie to anybody we're not going to kill. And then I said, but you know what? Even then, it's probably a bad idea because people they know are going to find out about it. And I just don't want to live with a lie. So we take our time. We tell our truth. So if I treat you with respect, I tell you the truth. I don't mislead you. I act like I care. And I actually do about how you feel about this deal. And you're going to want to deal with me again. Interesting, because one of the things that struck me when we were doing the program on negotiation was we did a bunch of role plays, and um, one of the one of the things that's always been I'll call it a blind spot of my own is that someone will ask a question about well how much can you afford and I'll just tell them, and then they'll negotiate me down below that and I will end up with a deal that I really regret having done because I will just answer honestly, but they take advantage of that honest answer, and. Either they think it was just a negotiating posture or they just go, ooh, well, now that, you know, let me see how much farther I can push him. How do you deal with that if you are on the side of the table where you're giving, you are giving something away in terms of what your hand is? Well, that's kind of the old game. He who names price first loses. And that's what that person is trying to deal with. You know, there's a, there's a couple of different things that if, if they did it to you exactly like that, first of all, they asked you a how question. And how questions are phenomenally powerful. We want to answer them. And your description of what happened just there is the exact case in point as to how powerful a how question is. It's remarkably powerful. So the answer, the, the response to that is when I'm playing a game with someone who he who names price first loses, which actually goes flies in the face of saying, well, you got to anchor. You got to go first. Right. You know, um, there's two completely different contradictory pieces of advice. How do I know whether to anchor when somebody else said he who names price first loses? How do, Somebody how asked, do you? Because that's a big question. I've heard both pieces of advice, and I'm kind of like, which do I follow? Or, how, or, how, or if they both apply in different circumstances, how do I know which one applies? Or do neither of them apply because you're about to tell me something that's going to blow the whole frame out of the water? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you to the black swan method of negotiation, which is um, I don't like throwing a number out first. I'll start to alluding to numbers. If I need them, I'll have to go high. But I, I, I want to get away because I've also found that with a high anchor, you run a risk of losing the deal and missing out on value. 
And that bothers me more than anything else because uh, a high anchor increases the chance that the other side's going to walk away when there was a deal to be had. And, of course, you don't want to throw a number at yourself first. It's too low because then, then again, you miss dollars. So my first answer to how, how much can you say uh, spend is always going to be, seems like you have a range in mind. Seems like you've got something in mind. A variety of things which are all called labels. Now, this is an adapted skill, again, from crisis intervention. And, you know, I've had, we called them emotional labels on, on, in the FBI hostage negotiation. And I've had no shortage of people, non-negotiation, communication types say, oh, yeah, we know about labels. Well, that's fine. That's, that's like uh, uh, Mira Lagasse showing you a new way to use a spoon to cook something up fantastic and have somebody who's still learning say, well, Amiro, that wasn't that, uh, that wasn't that fancy. I already knew about spoons. Well, it's not that you knew about the tool. It's that you know how to use it. And so what we do is we've taken this phenomenally powerful tool called labels. We put it in negotiations. We're breaking down what the, the communication uh, smorgasbord, a buffet from the other side. We're picking specific th things out to create triggers. And I'm trying to get a range of your values out of you but what's even more important that I know you haven't thought through really is what happens if this if you don't make this deal, which very few people think about. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to see much more long-term consequences. You begin to see much more what's on the table and more of their willingness to make an investment in you in order to make the deal happen. So that's what we're really after. I want numbers out of you, but I also want what else is involved because I'm going to ask for a lot of money at the end of the day. And I'm going to over-deliver, and I need your help to make sure that I over-deliver, and I deliver so much you forgot completely about what it costs you, and you're only thinking about all the benefits that came from doing business with me. Interesting. Now, do you do, would you do this in a client situation, too, where you're not going in to negotiate with, say, a vendor, but let's say somebody says, oh, you know, I'd love you to, to run a training for my company, and yeah, what are your rates? Uh, yeah, uh, so my rates, if I don't do some training for you that has an, uh, a long-term effect for you, if I charge you a dollar, if I charge you $100,000, it's going to be too much. We have to figure out, and, and I know for a fact that I can create somebody's negotiation effectiveness no less than 23%, probably 75%. I'll increase your negotiation effectiveness, somewhere in that range. Over a long-term period of time, if I can get these skills to stick. So we're not just going to come in and do a training for you. We're going to find ways to boost to that training in order to sort of get it in your bones. And I begin to talk about uh, much more in terms of how you will implement this and how we can make sure that these skills stick. As a matter of fact, tomorrow morning, we've got a 30-day follow-up from, from a training we did a month ago, which is always included in our follow-up time frame with any client that we've worked with because no matter what I charge them, they've got more at stake than what they could ever pay me. In a given client negotiation, I've had people report back to me that they've made $90,000 differences in single deals. How many times do you want to make that $90,000 difference? What's 23% work worth to you improvement over, the, over a year, let alone over the lifetime of, of your career? Real estate people are telling me they're going to make differences of millions of dollars over the course of their career. That's only if it sticks. And so no matter what I charge, it doesn't matter. It's more how we implement the training and whether or not I can get it to stick. 
And as soon as we start talking in those time frames and in those terms, then a client realizes that I'm going to be worth more to them than they could ever pay me. I probably, you know, I don't even want 10% of what I could be worth to them, but I got to make sure it's worth it to them. Otherwise, if it was a dollar, it's going to be a waste of money. And you do and, that, it, it and, sounds like, in part by understanding what their ranges are on different, because you gave the example of the range of price and said it seems like right. you have a range of prices. Do you do that on other dimensions too? Like you have a range of, of um, I mean, to continue with the training example, you have um, a range of people who you want to go through this or you want this to have an effect over certain amounts of time like what dimensions other than money do you look at or do you bring up or do you wait for them to bring it up and if so how do you get them to bring it up well i'll brainstorm with them i mean for me there's other value that they can throw on the table such as visibility in various forms of media social media visibility in their community um, visibility in their linkedin groups if they're advertising who they're doing business with and why and, and what kind of an impact it's had on their business. Because ultimately, uh, for a consultant such as myself, the real business comes from referrals. The real business comes from somebody that they know and trust saying, you know what, if you don't hire this guy, you're crazy. We've made so much money. And you want to leave money on the table, don't hire the guy. But that, those are the referrals, and, and that's what I'm really driving at. And good visibility and good referrals and book sales are very valuable to me. Um, you know, a critical key of negotiation is really, and, and I hate compromise, and I hate uh, meeting in the middle, and I, you know, and I hate splitting the difference. Those are horrible. But what we're really after is a high-value trade. And I had a, a, a bar association bring me in for probably a third of my fee for a day of training because they put me on the cover of their magazine. Now, they're putting out a monthly magazine that they have to put something on the cover. So it costs them nothing to put me on the cover. But how do I get on the cover of a magazine otherwise? That's not an easy thing to do. This is a classic definition of a high-value trade. What do they have that they got to do something with that they got easily that I don't have that I can't get easily? And I was more than happy to give away a significant amount of my, uh, my fee because they put me on the cover of their magazine. And that's really what we're after is that classic high value trade, which is a whole purpose for being in business with other people. You know, the open market in the first place was the farmer trading his food to the leather maker for the shoes. I mean, sure. because those people can give that stuff to each other and it, they're both better off. Well, and in fact, from what I remember from the idioms, the shoemaker has a lot of spare shoes because anything they make for their kids, they just give away. And the shoemaker's children have no shoes. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. So if there's any one thing that people should walk away remembering, if they only have one takeaway from listening to this, what should that be? Yes is nothing without how. If you haven't answered how, you better not say yes. Because what you're doing is you're relying on hope, and hope is not a strategy. I got no problem with saying yes, but there's a sequence. Answer your house before you ever answer yes. Wow. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Because that intrigues me a lot. You've mentioned how a few times. So so someone has made a proposal to me. They've said, I've said, I want $100 for the house. They've said, I'll pay you uh, 150 I say yes, but there's a how Wait, I think I just screwed up my example. Could well, you give me an example from, from, from your real life? How are we going to know we're on track? How are we going to get this done? How do we keep track of how we're doing? And if we're not on track, 
How are we going to get ourselves back on track? Those are three straight halves. You know, you sprinkle in a what and occasionally, what's our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? How do we get there? How long is it going to take? How do we know we're on track? If you can answer those hows and those whats, then you can say yes. If you can't answer them and people don't know, then you're going to be sitting around for a long time wondering when it's going to happen. And when you sit around, what you're wasting is the most valuable commodity in the world. The only line from the movie Wall Street 2 that I liked at all was when he said time is ultimately the most valuable commodity. The one commodity that you and I both have that's exactly equal to what the commodity that Warren Buffett is dealing with, time. He's got 24 hours, we got 24 hours. It's our most valuable commodity. Yeah. It's interesting, the how questions you just gave. I have a friend who's dealing with a contractor. He hired a contractor to do a job, and the contractor said, yes, I'll have 10 guys at the construction site tomorrow morning. My friend went by the construction site, one guy there. Right. And I, I, my friend called me up and said, what should I do? And what I walked him through was I said, well, I, you think you should call the person back and, and very quickly establish what you expect to see, what's going to happen if those people aren't there, et cetera, et cetera, and went through a series of questions which I hadn't thought about, but they essentially were, how do we know when we're done? How do we know progress is being made? How do we recover if things fall behind? None of which they had discussed before closing the deal. And as a result, within 10 minutes of the time the deal should have started, things were already going haywire. Right, right. It's classic. That's a classic move with a contractor because the contractor's done is he's taking your down payment to get your job started, and he really used it to use to buy the materials for the last job he took the down payment for, and he's funding somebody else's job with it. And he's not going to get started on your job until he's got the down payment for the next one, and then he's going to pay for your job. It's a tough business that those guys are in, and you, these are the questions that you gotta got to answer in advance. We actually did a negotiation with a contractor to put some windows in a house that I own, and what we did on the how do we what do we how do we get ourselves back on track? The guy kept saying, "Well, you know, we're going to get started in three to six weeks. Three to six weeks, we always get started. It's probably we're probably going to be done in four, but I say six weeks just in case." All right. So when when the other side is giving you a range, believe me, they're taking their end of the range. Yeah. So he's not planning on going anywhere with this in six weeks. And I asked him a bunch of times about this, and finally I said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. So if our windows aren't started by four weeks." And if I haven't heard from you, what I get to do is I get to call you on the phone and I get to cuss you out. And you're going to take that phone call and I'm going to chew you out and I'm going to yell and scream at you because you've already said you're probably going to be started by six, by three weeks. So you're giving me permission to do this at four. And he reluctantly agreed. Now, we also held back some of the deposit, but what this guy wanted the least of all was giving me permission to scream at him on the phone. And what ended up happening was on week three, he called us and he said, I'm looking out your windows. They're here in the shop and we're coming out this week because his deadline was he didn't want to get yelled at at week four. I'd already negotiated permission to do that with him. Now, how did you know that yelling at him would be a would be a sufficient impetus versus just, say, withholding more of the deposit? You know, um, it was more him getting giving permission to be yelled at, and it was something that then he had to worry about for the entire time. Now, he's in his holodeck, and every time he thinks of me, he imagines this. 
Now, he's getting yelled at people all the time, but it's spontaneously, and it's people that are angry with him. And, you know, he's used to dealing with that, but he's not really used to thinking about something for weeks. So that creates a much bigger, you know, in the, in the theater of his mind or the holodeck in advance, it gives me a lot more of an advantage. Wow. That's kind of brilliant. Um, but that is why <laughs> that's why you're the man who's 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 the top uh, uh, negotiator for the FBI and who wrote the book called Never Split the Difference. And um uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Chris. How can we find you and how can we find your book? All right. So Black Swan LTD is the website. Black like the color, B-L-A-C-K, Swan like the bird, LTD, Swan with one N. Now, the book is available wherever books are sold. But I will tell you that Amazon has the best price. So if you go buy it on Amazon, you're probably going to get the best price. If you go to our website, there's actually a link straight to the Amazon from the page where the book is. It'll give you a choice of several places you could go to, to order it online. And uh, take your pick and, and get it and start uh, making more money as soon as you get the book. Uh, that's uh, Well, I have the book, so I'm going to go make more money. Uh, thank you very much for being here, and it's been a pleasure. It was fun talking with you. Thank you very much. Certainly.